Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for joining us back from uh, Phoenix, Arizona, in the big dairy meeting. I was emceeing the joint annual meeting for the National Dairy Promotion and Research Board, National Milk Producers Federation, and United Dairy Industry Association. Always enjoy that meeting and had a great visit with folks there. A lot of concerns about uh, these economic times for the dairy industry. We'll be talking much more about that later in the program. We're going to have comments from uh, Zippy Duvall, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. He was uh, one of the panelists at uh, the dairy meeting. We're also going to talk with Tom Vilsack, former Secretary of Agriculture, now president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Get his views on the new U.S. MCA agreement. What does he see there from a dairy perspective? Heard yesterday from Jim Mulhern, president and CEO of the U.S. of the uh, National Milk Producers Federation. They're still kind of looking at it to see if they're going to fully endorse it and push for its passage or not. We'll get Tom Vilsack's views on it here in just a bit. And with next Tuesday, the big election day, the midterm elections, we're going to talk with David Wasserman with the uh, Cook Political Report. He's on a lot of the networks. Uh, he has a great grasp of these races all around the country and kind of handicapping how he thinks they're going to turn out. We'll talk with David Wasserman a little bit later on in the program. But right now, oh, yeah, I also want to say thank you, special thank you to Sabrina Hill for filling in for me the last couple of days. Really appreciate it. Thanks to Sabrina and the great work she did. All right, joining me now is Todd Neely with DTN. Todd, good morning. How are you? Good, Mike. How are you doing? Very good. Um, well, let's start with the big news. Dicamba, EPA, extends its use for a couple more years, but with a few tweaks on the usage, right? Yeah, you know, it uh, seems like we've seen this before a couple times. Uh, you know, we've had a number of cases, as you as you well know, uh, in the past couple of years of, of off-target movement. Um, you know, and EPA every time has made an adjustment um, to, to the rules, to the label, whatever the, whatever the situation may be, and uh, we've continued to see uh, you know drift damage. And so uh, this latest go around, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. We're not really sure at this point what a lot of these uh, what a not <clears throat> a lot of these new decisions are going to mean, um, but definitely EPA is as uh, for certain that it's uh, you know it's very active. And proactive in trying to keep dicamba available, and I think that's something that growers can look at in this situation. Whether these new um, these new restrictions and new uh, new rules actually get the job done is yet to be seen. But I think um, you know di- you know dicamba is at least around the, around to stay for a bit. Yeah, and it wasn't a sure thing, right? I mean, there were there were real questions of which way EPA right. would go on this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was no guarantee, especially, um, you know, when we've seen two crop years consecutive uh, where there's been damage concerns and lots of reports. Um, and I and I think, you know, as we go forward, we're going to probably, um, you know, see EPA make further adjustments to this. It's just going to depend on, you know, whether this last go-around is actually going to, um, you know, get the job done. But I, I think, you know, that that's the good side of this, that EPA is definitely on top of it and, um, you know they're not. You know they're not fast to pull the trigger and, and pull that label at this point. 
So again, the news, EPA extends the use of dicamba, allows it for two more years, but with some tweaks, some restrictions on, on its use and when and how and things like that. We'll be talking more about those details in the days to come. Also want to talk when it comes to ETA, EPA, it's kind of interesting, uh, some environmental groups petitioning EPA to change the way it monitors land use changes when it comes to renewable fuels. Uh, so what's behind this? Are they are they tr- claiming then that uh, the environment's being hurt because we're planting more crops just to uh, meet the demands of renewable fuels? Is that what they're saying? Yeah, you know, Mike, for years we've kind of seen the same argument being made that, um, you know, EPA put out um, the RFS, the second RFS in 2007, and one of the requirements in the RFS is that uh, land uh, that is used to grow feedstocks, it has to, it had to be farmed prior to the passage of the Act in 2007. Um, and so this was put in place basically so that, you know, we wouldn't see a widespread uh, conversion of grasslands and other things to biofuels crops like corn and soybeans. Um, you know, over the years since this Act was, was passed, there really hasn't been a lot of good data as to, uh, you know, you know, we see land use changes occurring, but it's really difficult to say, uh, you know, on an individual field level why a farmer decided to do something. Um, but one thing we do know is that we haven't seen massive grasslands planted to corn and soybeans. Um, you know, there has been some changes, but basically what the environmental groups are wanting EPA to do now is to make biofuel producers uh, prove that the feedstocks that they're getting um, are compliant with that regulation. And so right now it's not really uh, – right now EPA kind of looks at the overall effect of the overall changes in acres, total acres every year. And if it remains, you know, at a certain level, um, you know, the EPA considers it in compliance. And so now these groups are asking the agency to go to each individual producer and make them prove that they're uh, using feedstocks that are compliant. It'll be interesting to see EPA's response to this. Yeah, you know, and we've seen over the years, we've seen various petitions. We've seen, uh, you know, even a couple legal challenges here and there that never really go anywhere. Um, But I I think at this point in time, I I don't see the agency jumping on this petition and saying that this is, you know, that there's a groundswell to make this change. I mean, this is really – kind of an old argument the environmental groups have been making for years. Um, You know, in the beginning, they were in support of biofuels, and and we've seen a shift in that, um, you know, in the recent, you know, the past five or seven years. And so I think this is just kind of another in a long line of uh, changes environmental groups are wanting. And at this point, it doesn't doesn't seem that EPA is going to be all that interested and, you know, maybe won't even consider the petition. I guess we have to wait and see. Right. It's an old charge, an old claim, and they're just kind of make, they're making another run at it. We'll see it, if it goes anywhere this time. Hopefully not, but uh, we will see. Uh, and also uh, yeah. EPA uh, setting numbers uh, for the RFS for uh, the next year. Yeah. Uh, you know, they had sent the final numbers for 18 and then the 19 biomass, diesel biomass numbers uh, to the OMB. And so this is kind of the last stage. And there's no reason to think that EPA won't have a, a final rule by the end of November. I think the deadline's the 30th of November. Um, and here we go. I think this will be like the third time in a row that the agency's actually, um, you know, met those deadlines. And so that's a bit of good certainty. Yeah. 
it, it kind of says something when that's news that EPA meets a deadline, but uh, that's because <laughs> of the past history, and we'll see what the numbers are and whether or not there's any change in those waivers, uh, whether or not that, right. that we feel these numbers are you know solid or not or if they've been undermined. All right, Todd, as always, good to talk Absolutely. to you. Lots going on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Take care. Todd Neely with DTN. Yeah, lots going on right now, and a lot of it has to do with EPA. All right, coming up next, uh, as I mentioned earlier, at the dairy meeting I've been at the last couple days in Phoenix, uh, one of the speakers there, Zippy Duvall, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. And uh, when we come back, you'll hear some thoughts from uh, President Duvall about uh, what he's hearing from farmers across the country. We'll talk trade, farm bills, some of those issues as well. So stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. It's not just storing grain, it's storing quality. At FS, quality isn't just a promise, it's a statement. Our grain systems experts stay focused on what's ahead by providing state-of-the-art grain systems that protect grain quality in the bin, along with larger capacity bins that keep us moving forward. We're always looking for ways to optimize operations and ensure our customers are ready for what's next. So visit FSSystem.com and let's get you headed towards your next success. FS, bringing you what's next. I'm Billy Sutton. As a West River cowboy, I grew up on my family ranch, working cattle, riding horses, and going to church on Sunday. But on TV, Christy Nome's trying to make me someone I'm not. I'm a pro-gun, fiscal conservative. I worked with Republicans to cut taxes, and I oppose a state income tax. As governor, growing South Dakota's economy will be my top priority, and I'll work with anyone to get it done, including President Trump. As governor, I'll invest in education so that our schools are preparing our kids for the future. I'll invest in career and technical training to make sure that our workers have the skills they need to get good-paying jobs so they can provide for their families. And as someone who grew up raising cattle, I'll never forget the crucial role that agriculture plays in our state's economy. I'm Billy Sutton. I see a future for South Dakota that is bright and beautiful. I know that if we work together, tomorrow can be better than today. Paid for by Sutton for South Dakota. What if you had a medical emergency away from home? What you need is Mobile Help, America's premier mobile medical alert system. Most systems only work at home, but with Mobile Help, you get help outside the home with coverage nationwide on one of the largest cellular networks at the press of a button. I press the button, and lo and behold, the emergency came within minutes. Mobile Help did save my life. No question about that. Call Mobile Help now for a free color brochure. We'll send you everything you need, including the base station, the patented mobile device, 
the waterproof pendant and wrist button. You can also add the fall button that automatically detects falls and signals help. Call today and receive a risk-free 30-day trial. There's no equipment to buy and no long-term contract. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free emergency key box with your plan purchase. Remember, mobile help keeps you safe coast to coast. Call 800-930-6137 now for your free mobile help brochure. That's 800-930-6137. Again, 800-930-6137. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, I just got back from Phoenix where I was emceeing the joint annual meeting for the National Dairy Promotion and Research Board, National Milk Producers Federation, and United Dairy Industry Association. Always enjoy this meeting. I've had the pleasure of emceeing it the last several years. And um, I learn a lot at this meeting every year. I learn a lot about the dairy industry, their challenges, and the the wonderful programs that, that they have underway, the efforts they have underway on a number of fronts, whether it's policy or or promotion, market development, whatever it may be. Uh, there's a lot of really good things going on to promote dairy and move our dairy products domestically and around the world. But but there's just no getting around. Uh, these are tough economic times for agriculture in general. Dairy in particular going through another really tough year. Producers are really struggling, and that was uh, very much the mood at the meeting, a meet, uh, mood of concern and um some frustration, and uh, but I think also some hope because they could see uh, the efforts underway on their behalf to try to uh, move more dairy products and improve prices for producers. Uh, so that was kind of the backdrop to the whole meeting. And one of the panelists was Zippy Duvall, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. And when I talked with Zippy, I asked him, what was he hearing from farmers as he's traveled around the country, what level of concern was he picking up on? Yes, you know, we, we're experiencing a perfect storm. I describe it as that uh, out in farmland with uh, lack of labor, uh, don't have a farm bill yet, uh, prices are down, we've got a trade war going on. There's, there's a lot of things out there that's creating a perfect storm for agriculture and affecting our family farms. In your conversations with Secretary Purdue and other administration officials, do they understand the price that agriculture is paying in these trade issues being uh, uh, dealt with all around the world? They do understand that, and, and I think that uh, understanding and our uh, members' engagement, our farmers personally being engaged in communicating what is, uh, how it's hurting us has helped them move things forward, and that's why we have a USMCA agreement right now, and uh, you, we've seen where the FTA uh, process has been started on uh, Japan, UK, and KU, uh, and I think that's a great outlook because we're going on the offense, going to look for bilaterals, uh, and of course we all know that the China deal is going to take a long time. Uh, and, and so they understand that, and, and they're trying their best to get there as fast as they can to what I understand and what I think they're doing. Uh, but I think they have a full understanding of how, how hard it is out in farmland. Do you sense that there's any weakening of uh, support for the administration? Uh, are farmers' patience uh, kind of running a little thin right now because uh, it continues to drag on? I think that's to, uh, determined by what commodity you're producing, uh, what region of the country you're in, 
uh, whether you were financially stable going into this trade war or, or whether, whether you were on the edge. And I think it's all over the board as to how an individual farmer is having to deal with this. Of course, our older guys that's been around a long time and it's financially sound, you know, they see the opportunity to fix this while we have a president that supports fixing it. Uh, but if you're a young man just started four years ago, five years ago when everything was good, he's experiencing what I did in the 80s when I was that age. And that is a very difficult thing to, uh, to experience. Uh, so it just depends on where you're at and what you're growing. We continue to wait for a farm bill to be passed. What is your sense of how close they are, or are they actually maybe further apart than they were not too long ago? Well, I'm very confident we're going to have a farm bill, and I think we'll get it done for the end of the year. I think the situation that we have out in farmland in, the, in our economy situation, I think it's going to encourage the people in Congress to come forward with a farm bill because it does give us certainty uh, in a lot of areas, especially where we had to go get our uh, operating loans to get the next crop in. I think they see the urgency of getting it done. I think we're going to have a farm bill. We're starting to hear, though, about battles over commodities, uh, regions of the country, who gets how much of the funding. Do you see that as a threat to getting the farm bill done? That's always a threat, and that's where our farm family starts coming apart when we start bidding against each other or trying to take from one to add to the other. All sectors of agriculture is hurting. Uh, there's, there's not a real bright spot uh, in agriculture today and, and we got we to gotta work together to try to make sure that uh, we do the best for our farm and our, and our commodity but not hurt the others and, and we're all in this together and the only way we're going to survive is to stay together. You are certainly very aware, being from uh, Georgia, uh, what many producers are going through right now in the southeastern part of the country because of hurricanes. Uh, do you feel the, the federal government has had a good response to those needs? Uh, I, I think they really have. I think they've been and visited. They've seen the devastation. Now they're in the process of working out a uh, some way to, to assist those farmers to get back on their feet and survive to the next crop. And it's not just Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. It's uh, South Carolina and North Carolina in that area, too, that came with the earlier hurricane. And they were two different type storms, uh, but the devastation was just as bad. Finally, on the opioid crisis, I know Farm Bureau very active in, in, in trying to, to help uh, fight this uh, terrible crisis that has spread across the country. Can you give us an update? Where are you at on that front and uh, some of the things being done by Farm Bureau? Sure. Uh, we were also working with uh, Farmers Union on that. It's a joint process that we're working together. And what we're trying to do is uh, raise the awareness of the issue out there. You know, uh, 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 this is this is not, this is, this is a uh, 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 illness. When people get addicted to drugs, it's, it's a disease, and we need to treat it like that. And, you know, like years in the past, we take people with diseases or alcoholism and push them over to the side and act embarrassed. We need to bring them out and get rid of that stigma so that we can help our neighbors. This is no different than a storm going through my neighbor's uh, yard and tearing down his barns. We all show up the next day to try to help him. And this is our effort to say, if someone's going through this, and we're going to see more and more of it as the economic times get more difficult in agriculture. We need to be out there helping them. So we have a web page where, where people can go find help and get uh, guided to an area that they find help. And it's called uh, Farm Town Strong. Uh, and, and we're encouraging people if they see something 
to try to help their neighbor through this and, and use this web page to be able to find some resources. And Zippy, what is your message to farmers across the country that are dealing with all sorts of challenges and issues? And this is really a downtime. Uh, uh, the prospects for next year right now, price-wise, not looking real strong for a lot of them either. What is your message to them? Well, I think we've got to keep our head up. You know, keep our head up, keep working hard. But the key to really uh, finding solutions to the challenges that we meet is for our members, whether they be Farm Bureau members or whether they be uh, 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 members of a milk cooperative, uh, is for us to be engaged in the process. You know, we're a government of of not a majority of the people, but we're a government of the people, a majority of the people that show up. And our people on farms need to show up, not just to vote, but be engaged on the uh, discussion of the issues, calling their congressmen and senators, writing the White House, whatever they can do to make sure that they're engaged in the process because we have an administration that understands agriculture, concerned about agriculture, wants to change the future so that agriculture can be profitable again, and they, we have their ears, so the only way we're going to get solutions in the right way is for us to be engaged. And that's what I'm telling farmers everywhere. Well, let's don't lose hope. Let's keep our heads up, keep working hard, and let's be more engaged than we've ever been before because we have an opportunity that we may never have again. That's Zippy Duvall, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, uh, one of the panelists, one of the speakers at this week's dairy meeting out in Phoenix. Zippy certainly related well to the, the audience, uh, talking, back, uh, talking about his days uh, uh, being uh, a dairy producer himself. And his, he uh, related well to the struggles that uh, the dairy industry is going through right now and understood uh, what the, they're dealing with. And as you heard, uh, uh, he's been hearing about those concerns as he's traveled around the country. Uh, he's optimistic uh, that the administration not only hears uh, those concerns, but uh, is in the process of taking the steps to deal with them. Now, of course, one of the things that's touted is the new USMCA, the trade deal with Canada and Mexico. But there is a new report out from Farm Foundation and Purdue that basically says the gains that could be agriculture could get in the new NAFTA, the USMCA as, as it's being called, would be offset and perhaps more than offset by retaliatory tariffs on American goods. The analysis uh, says that U.S. farmers and ranchers could lose nearly $1.8 billion in exports if counter tariffs continue long term. Purdue also analyzing the uh, combined impact of the tariffs. Um, as well as not only with Canada and Mexico, but with China and the European Union as well, saying that they could, over time, if they continue, could sh shrink ag exports by nearly $8 billion. So uh, a lot of concern there. All right, coming up next, a look ahead to next week's elections. Wow, we've been talking about these for some time. David Wasserman with the Cook Political Report does a tremendous job of handicapping the races. He has a great knowledge and grasp on all these races, key races around the country. You'll get his thoughts on how it all may play out next week. That's coming up next. Stay with us on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. We talked to some of Billy Sutton's neighbors, people who have known him for years. Here's what they had to say. The Billy you see on TV is not real Billy. His folks ranch down the river bottom. We were two miles apart, so I know. 
he is a Democrat and he tries to pretend he's not. People can't see it because they're being told something else. Senator Sutton will campaign as a moderate Democrat and then turn around and govern as a liberal. We know that's what he is. He's going to appoint a cabinet full of people who do stand on that platform. What he believes depends on who he's talking to. Billy says one thing and then appears to mean another. And he doesn't stand up for our values. This is a guy that, in his own words, was thrilled to support Hillary Clinton. He said that she has American family values. She has no family values that we have. You're voting for a liberal philosophy, and we don't need that in South Dakota. Democrat Billy Sutton, what he believes depends on who he's talking to. You can't trust Billy. Paid for by Christy for Governor. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. In the grain and oil seed sector, an early rally for corn, soybeans, and the wheat futures, too. In the outside markets, U.S. stocks opened higher on Thursday. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rising over 150 points shortly after the opening bell. We have since backed off. The dollar trending lower early Thursday. Grains trending higher. New crop December corn still above the 360 and a quarter low from October 11th, trending around 367 and three quarters an hour into the trading day. On the upside, 10-day moving average resistance is seen at 367. Weekly wheat export sales said to be strong, over 582,000 metric tons. Chicago wheat trending three to four higher, same range in Kansas City, two and a fraction better in Minneapolis spring wheat. In soybean futures to the top side, the burden lied on soybean bulls to pierce initial chart resistance at 865 and a half. That'd be the high from October 29th. They need to move through that level in order to improve the minor trend outlook, and we've done it on this Thursday. We've trended over 20 cents higher in soybeans. The 20-day moving average on January beans seen at 8.73. For livestock, the Merck and live cattle futures, treading water early as we await cash cattle activity. Nebraska bids on a dress basis at 180, asking prices 185. Feeder cattle. Steady to 27 cents higher. Lean hog futures 15 to 32 cents higher. Again on Wall Street, the Dow up over 100 points. Crude oil down 27 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. I'm Rusty Halverson. Reason number 12 why you should own a Thermospas hot tub? They require no attachment to your home's plumbing. Thanks to the Thermospas unique built-in thermofiltration system that filters the water an incredible 144 times a day, you simply fill it with a garden hose and your water stays crystal clear with very little maintenance. Call to receive a free DVD and brochure and find out how you can own a Thermospas hot tub for only a few dollars a day. Right now, they're offering 0% APR financing with approved credit and a $1,000 savings coupon, including free delivery, free chemicals, and a cash discount. And with bottles starting at $4,995, there will never be a better time to own a Thermospas hot tub. So call now and ask about this limited time offer. Call Thermospas today at 800-991-5852 for your free DVD and brochure. That's 800-991-5852. Thermospas, hot tubs designed to improve your life. Call 800-991-5852 today to take advantage of 0% APR financing. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. 
Now back to Mike Adams. Well, a lot at stake next week uh, with the midterm elections. We've been talking about these for some time. Uh, when it comes to, you know, will Democrats uh, take over the House? Uh, do the Republicans hang on to either or both chambers? Uh, some key races around the country. So much at stake. The backdrop of uh, the economy and for agriculture, the trade, trade tensions, all that playing a part in this. Uh, what kind of message does it send? What does it say about the how people think about President Trump? There are just so many uh, storylines that uh, will be written here in the next few days uh, with the election coming up on Tuesday. This week at the dairy meeting in Phoenix, David Wasserman was one of the speakers. You may have uh, seen or heard him. He's on a lot of the networks handicapping uh, the, uh, the, the races. He's an analyst with the Cook Political Report. He is really tuned in has a great grasp of these races all across the country. And I had an interesting conversation with him this week in Phoenix about what he sees happening next week and started off with the big question whether or not uh, the Democrats regain control of the House. Here's what he has to say. At this point, they have about a 70 to 75% chance of retaking control. Uh, the most likely outcome is that Democrats will gain somewhere between 30 and 40 House seats. They need 23 to, to take control of the chamber, uh, but it's not a done deal yet. Uh, there are a wide range of possibilities because there are so many more competitive races than we've seen in the last couple of years. And the other part of it is, even if Democrats do, that doesn't automatically mean Nancy Pelosi becomes speaker again. You're absolutely right, and the margin really matters. Uh, if Democrats have a margin of one to ten seats, that is what I would call civil war territory because. Uh, I could name you 10 or 15 Democrats who under no circumstances will vote for Pelosi for Speaker. They include people who are already in the House, like Connor Lamb. Uh, they include a number of Democratic candidates who are trying to win pretty red districts by saying they won't vote for her. And a number of them saw what happened the last time that uh, Democrats took control in 2006. They promptly lost their majority because Republicans were able to run against her as a San Francisco liberal elitist. And when you think about who would be an ideal face for the party. You might think of someone uh, like Sherry Bustos from Illinois, maybe Hakeem Jeffries from uh, from New York as young, uh, charismatic leaders uh, who don't have as many liabilities. It's just not clear that they're ready for that job. In what scenario, what would have to happen for Republicans to keep the House? They need a couple things to go their way. First of all, they would need to flip some Democratic seats to their own column uh, as kind of insurance runs, if you will. They do have opportunities to pick up uh, two open Democratic seats in Minnesota, where uh, Rick Nolan and Tim Walls are retiring. Uh, they also have an excellent uh, chance of picking up uh, Connor Lamb's open seat in Pennsylvania. He's leaving to run in, against a, a Republican incumbent in a, in a neighboring district. They have some opportunities in Nevada. But overall, uh, Republicans would need to win a lot of races by very, very close margins. And that's not something we typically see happen. Now, over on the Senate side, it looks like Republicans, you think, will keep control of the Senate. So Republicans may even gain a seat or two in the Senate, and it's a function of the map of Senate seats that's up this year. It just so happens that, uh, that Democrats are defending more than half of their Senate seats, 26 of their 49, whereas Republicans are only defending nine of their 51, less than a fifth. And that's uh, just not a lot of exposure for Republicans. And in fact, they've got 
uh, a lot of opportunities against Democrats who hold uh, red state seats on borrowed time. So uh, we're looking at uh, probably three Democratic incumbents who are narrow uh, or, or, you know, considerable underdogs for reelection right now. What do you see as President Trump's influence on the outcome next week? Well, well of course, this election is to some degree about President Trump, even though uh, what's remarkable to me is that the, the candidates aren't necessarily talking about him in their ads. Republicans are, are talking about Nancy Pelosi and Democrats are talking about pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but make no doubt about it, uh, or make no mistake about it, Democrats are, are uh, gaining ground in these districts in, in large part because um, anger is a stronger motivator than love, and Democrats are angry with this president, much as Republicans were angry with Barack Obama in 2010. It's interesting, and this kind of sets us up then for 2020, which I think is fascinating because you have a president who won, but he ran as much against Republicans as he did Democrats, and he, he won as that outsider. He really didn't build any real alliance even within his own party. Can that change by 2020? So. Trump did an effective job in 2016 of coalition building. He had his his anti-establishment supporters, uh, whether you want to call them nationalists or or you know uh, just his his MAGA crowd. Uh, but he also uh, managed to hold on to traditional conservative Republicans, even a lot of social conservatives, because of the Supreme Court, and in part because he picked Mike Pence as his running mate. Um, he does start out, in my opinion, as the slight favorite for re-election in 2020, even though his approval rating is at 42 percent. And the reason is that uh, Democrats have have no obvious uh, front runner at the moment uh, who, who would have uh, appeal in the middle of the country in the states that they need to win the Electoral College. Uh, they also have a primary process that uh, promotes infighting uh, because Democrats allocate their delegates on a proportional basis. Uh, that means if you have 15 candidates uh, running for the nomination, they could get to their convention and have a floor fight just three months before turning around and needing to run against Trump. So uh, it would be fascinating to, to see how that takes shape. We're talking with David Wasserman with the Cook Political Report. You see him on all the major networks, uh, especially right around election time. Uh, let's take a look at some key races. How do you see that North Dakota Senate race playing out? It's just really hard to see a path to re-election for Heidi Heitkamp at this point. Um, she voted against uh, Kavanaugh's confirmation in a state that uh, voted for Donald Trump by 36 points. And uh, her, her uh, uh, aides said afterwards that uh, she's got to wake up and like the person she sees in the morning. Uh, she may emerge as a hero to Democrats for many years to come because of her vote, uh, but she, it certainly added to her political troubles. And uh, all along, uh, she has needed one major thing to happen to have a chance at winning re-election, and that's for Kevin Kramer to put his foot in his mouth. Uh, and I've always said there's about a 50% chance of that happening, but so far it, it, it hasn't been bad enough uh, to cost Kramer his lead. Holly McCaskill in Missouri. Uh, McCaskill is also an underdog for re-election, in part because uh, she's an unabashed, uh, you know, liberal Democrat, um, or she would argue probably more of a populist, in a state that has has moved 
towards the Republicans in a hurry. Uh, this is a state that nearly voted for Barack Obama in 2008, voted for Trump by 19 points in 2016. So uh, she's she's had a lot of luck in the past running against very flawed opponents, Todd Aiken uh, being the most obvious one. Uh, Josh Hawley isn't perfect, but the fact that Eric Greitens resigned uh, lifted a cloud over Republicans in that state. I think the Kavanaugh vote has hurt her. What about some of the key governor's races around the country? Democrats' biggest victories on election night are are probably going to be in governor's races. Uh, you know, the House is is, is uh, their their top priority right now, but these governorships are really going to decide. Uh, uh, a lot in the next four years, particularly because the federal government is is a legislative graveyard at the moment, and states are where things are getting done. So Democrats have good shots at uh, picking up uh, offices in Illinois, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin is a much closer race, but the Democrat Tony Evers looks like he's the slight favorite for now. Uh, Florida looks good for Democrats, uh, even Iowa. Uh, and, you know, Republicans are going to hold on to some, some blue states in New England. They even have a shot at picking up Oregon. But uh, Democrats have some shots at picking up some really, really red states, places like Iowa, uh, Oklahoma, Kansas, South Dakota. So it's a fascinating map because it doesn't align neatly with what we think of as red and blue. You think Rauner is vulnerable then in Illinois? Uh, Rauner's not just vulnerable. Uh, he, he's probably uh, politically a dead man walking. And that's been the case for quite some time against J.B. Pritzker. There, there is an element of, of uh, the vote in Illinois that uh, you know, voted for Trump in 2016, but they like the idea of a, of, of a wealthy business person who says he's not beholden to anyone. Uh, but I think the bigger problem for Rauner is that he's had too many people to try and please. Mm-hmm. He's had no choice but to work with a very uh, liberal legislature to, to try and reform the state. Uh, in the process, he's alienated uh, uh, Republicans who, who nearly voted him uh, out of, of office in the primary. Uh, and he's certainly uh, not won Democratic friends. So uh, that adds up to a, a pretty big margin for Pritzker at the moment. So, David, it it's, looks to me like it plays out. This is what concerns me, that we're going to be still very divided. Um, and I don't see a candidate from either party they can really step forth and and look like a unifier for the country. Do you? I mean, is I don't see that by any one individual. I don't see that on either party really as, as something that's going to bring unity to the country. I see more divisiveness, more division. We're headed for a, a extended period of, of of division in this country because uh, those those uh, divides are sharpening, uh, not softening, and. Uh, we are going to see, in particular, uh, a Democratic disadvantage in the U.S. Senate. That is David Wasserman, an analyst with the Cook Political Report. It'll be interesting to see what happens next week. Be sure to vote, and uh, we'll see how it all plays out. But he thinks uh, that the very, very good chance that the Democrats will regain control of the House. He thinks the Republicans uh, keep the Senate, may even add some seats in the Senate, And as you heard him say, he thinks Democrats will make some gains uh, in some of those governor's races. We will see Election Day next Tuesday. David Wasserman with the Cook 
Political Report. Up next, former Ag Secretary, now President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Tom Vilsack, will talk trade next on AOA. We paid less for our Craftmatic today than we did 20 years ago. If you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and free information on today's Craftmatic adjustable beds. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Rated number one by consumers nationwide on ConsumerAffairs.com. Craftmatic beds come in all mattress types, including cool gel memory foam for up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Enjoy temporary relief of low back pain, poor circulation, nighttime heart for a mild arthritis. You'll sleep better in a Craftmatic adjustable bed. So if you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and information. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Discover Craftmatic for less, up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Call 1-800-318-7903. That's 1-800-318-7903. 1-800-318-7903. Call now. I'm here to tell you that your options for getting out of debt have never been better. How do I know? Because I'm Howard Dvorkin, the founder of Consolidated Credit. For nearly two decades, we've helped over five million people just like you. And every time we help someone, they all say the same thing. Why didn't I call sooner? If you owe too much money on your credit cards and you feel that you'll never be able to pay it off, don't wait. Simply pick up the phone and find out what our Freedom Quest program can do for you. Reducing your payments by up to 50% is just the beginning, but you have to take the first step. When credit card debt is the problem, we're the solution. Call Consolidated Credit now. As soon as you call, the hard part is over. Call Consolidated Credit now. 1-800-489-7204. 1-800-489-7204. That's 1-800-489-7204. 5701 Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Licensed debt management service provider, Vermont and New York Banking Departments, Maryland 49, Oregon DM80031. South Dakota is a veteran's state. I come from Hot Springs, which is a veteran's town. We had some questions on the VA. It was closing. We had people that used the VA saying, I got to have it. If I don't have it, I'm going to die. We had people whose parents and children used the VA saying, we need it. And when we started the battle with the VA, Christy Nome was the first person, anybody of any authority, to come on board. She has carried the battle like a torch, leading the way for everybody else. For the veterans of this state, Christy Nome is our girl. She stood up for us when it comes to the VA in Hot Springs. And that's not just Hot Springs. That's across the entire state. And she gained nothing, absolutely nothing. She got no money in her campaign. She didn't have us marching down the street with signs for her. She did it because it's the right thing to do. That's Christy Nome. And that's the person I want to be governor. Christy Nome, tested, proven, conservative for governor. Paid for by Christy for governor. Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic, safe, effective, even money-saving, just like FDA-approved generic drugs. Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that. We all want more time with our dads, brothers, partners, friends, and our sons. Time for more conversations, more catch-ups, 
more of what life's all about. Now is our time to make it happen. Together, we can stop men dying too young by tackling the big issues. Prostate cancer, testicular cancer, mental health, suicide. It's time to act. Sign up at Movember.com and raise funds to help change the face of men's health. I'm Billy Sutton. As a West River cowboy, I grew up on my family ranch, working cattle, riding horses, and going to church on Sunday. But on TV, Christy Nome's trying to make me someone I'm not. I'm a pro-gun, fiscal conservative. I worked with Republicans to cut taxes, and I oppose a state income tax. As governor, growing South Dakota's economy will be my top priority, and I'll work with anyone to get it done, including President Trump. As governor, I'll invest in education so that our schools are preparing our kids for the future. I'll invest in career and technical training to make sure that our workers have the skills they need to get good paying jobs so they can provide for their families. And as someone who grew up raising cattle, I'll never forget the crucial role that agriculture plays in our state's economy. I'm Billy Sutton. I see a future for South Dakota that is bright and beautiful. I know that if we work together, tomorrow can be better than today. Paid for by Sutton for South Dakota. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. How did dairy do in the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement? I asked that question of Tom Vilsack, president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, and, of course, former Secretary of Agriculture. Dairy was such a big part of this uh, uh, negotiations. How did dairy do? Good news in the sense that we're going to have additional market access in Canada. Good news in terms of our ability to preserve the market opportunities in Mexico. Still a little uncertain about whether or not the retaliatory tariffs can be lifted in time for us to take full advantage of the agreement once it's ratified. And also making sure that we keep an eye on how the Canadian aspect of this agreement is actually implemented to determine whether or not it's as good as we hope it to be. The price system that Canada was using that the U.S. dairy industry wanted to have dismantled, basically done away with. Is it completely gone or is it still existing in some other form? Mike, that's a great question. Uh, clearly, Class 7 is gone or will be gone once the agreement is ratified. In its place is a pricing system that could potentially be manipulated in a way that brings us back very close to what Class 7 was. That's why we have to be a very, keep a very wary eye on how this is implemented. There's an opportunity for the Canadians to tie their pricing system into our pricing system with an adjustment that they can make at the applicable Canadian allowance. It's unclear what that actually means when they use the term applicable Canadian allowance. Is it something that can be moved? Is it something that is fixed? And if it's fixed, what is it fixed to? These are all technical questions that we have to have answered before we know for sure that Class 7 has been uh, eliminated. The president likes to talk about the value of tariffs, but we know tariffs to agriculture have been costly. We're starting to see the numbers really mount up for dairy. Oh, no question about it. Uh, here at the annual meeting, we saw a presentation that suggested anywhere from $1.2 billion to $1.5 billion of lost revenue over the next 12 months as a result of these tariffs. We've actually had a long-term study taking a look particularly at the, Canadian, or the uh, China situation, and what that shows is that potentially over the next five years, a $12 billion loss of revenue just in China. So there's clearly uh, a price that is being paid for the tariffs and that's why it's important for us to make uh, clear to the administration we want the retaliatory uh, tariffs on aluminum and steel lifted so we can 
access that Mexican market, and we want you to sit down with the uh, Chinese and get this matter resolved between the two countries so that we have an opportunity to take advantage of an incredibly exploding and growing market. We saw a 47 percent increase in sales to China from 2017 to the first part of 2018 or excuse me, from 2016 to 2017, we saw the same growth pattern in the first part of 2018. As soon as the tariffs were assessed, we've seen very little growth. There's a lot of concern about what is the long-term damage of the trade tensions between the U.S. and China, that even if a deal is struck at some point, hopefully in the near future, has damage already been done? Have we allowed the door to open to other competitors to get in there? Is it going to be harder for us to get back what we may have lost? How do you feel about that? Well, we're very sensitive to that in dairy, and that's why the U.S. Dairy Export Council has continued to maintain its relationships in China, continue to invest in the university partnership that we recently announced, continuing to have visits to China by myself and other uh, high-ranking uh, officials of U.S. DEC, so that we are continually sending the message, this is a relationship we value, this is a relationship we want to continue. I think some other aspects of agriculture are going to have a harder time essentially recapturing market, uh, recapturing that sense of trust. I think there is a good relationship on the dairy side. There's going to be a need, a huge need for dairy, which the U.S. is in a great position to respond to. So I think long term our relationship can be repaired so long as this thing doesn't last for years and years and years. The longer it goes, the more difficult that will become. There is optimism or at least some hope that a deal could be struck with Japan. What's the potential of that market? Great opportunity, but little concern about precisely how that deal is going to be structured. The Japanese have indicated a, somewhat of a reluctance to include agriculture in the discussion. So we'll have to see whether or not the administration, our administration, can compel the J Japanese to open up market access. If they do, will it be greater than, less than, the same as what was granted under the TPP arrangement, where we saw very little uh, growth in that market? The Japanese market is an important cheese market for us. We're continuing to look for creative ways, not only in cheese, but also ingredients aging population. We think there's opportunities here in the health and wellness space that we haven't really explored until recently. So we're optimistic about that, uh, about that market. But obviously, if we could get a free trade agreement where we had greater access, we would obviously benefit from it. How about differences with the European Union over the names of cheeses and dairy products? Where do we stand with that? Well, that was a problem. Getting out of the TPP, we lost the capacity to have a due process system. Now, we, fortunately, the USMCA includes a new due process uh, situation where both Canada and Mexico will have to advise the United States of any potential agreements with other nations on, on the GI issue. But we don't have that same kind of protection in, in Asia. Uh, so it's going to be important for us to keep a wary eye. Uh, obviously, the Europeans know at the end of the day they aren't going to be able to compete with us in terms of productivity or, for that matter, that we've now become a, a significant competitor of theirs in terms of quality of cheese. So the way they're trying to dominate the market is by essentially uh, being the only person in the market that can use certain cheese names. We've limited that damage so far, uh, but the longer the time goes on where we don't have free trade agreements with some of these Asian countries, the greater the chances are that Europe completes its agreements with them. And are there some other markets out there that hold potential that we've not fully reached yet? Clearly, Southeast Asia is a place where we're paying a lot of attention. We think uh, emerging middle class is expanding uh, population centers as well as an urbanized uh, population. I think we're going to see a lot of growth there. Uh, the Middle East and North Africa, we think we, we had a significant market share there, which we've lost a bit to, to the EU. We think we can reclaim that with a bit of uh, aggressive effort. And we don't want to forget the, the Latin America and South America. There are opportunities there, Chile, Peru. Uh, some of the uh, Central American countries in the Caribbean islands. So we're looking at ways in which we can expand what we did in Mexico to indicate that we're not trying to compete with the dairy producers in those countries, but we want to complement what they do to grow demand for dairy generally.
That is former Secretary of Agriculture, now President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Tom Vilsack. His thoughts uh, from a dairy perspective on the trade issues around the world, especially uh, the new USMCA. And again, um, there's still some questions there. Looks like U.S. Dairy may have gained some in the deal, but uh, there are some details there that are still concerning that uh, questions yet to be answered uh, before the dairy industry comes out and and says it's a a victory or not. So uh, we'll see how that plays out in the days ahead. Wow, November is off and running. Lots of news, lots of things going on, especially as we head into the elections next week. Lots uh, to talk about coming up on tomorrow's program. More reaction on the EPA dicamba decision. More on these trade issues. And again, a look ahead to the elections next week as well. Hey, we get ready this weekend. We'll be changing the clocks and just all sorts of things happening. Stay with us. Glad you're with us today. Hope you'll tune in again tomorrow right here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day, everyone.